Whoa, man, you just appeared out of nowhere. You are John Connor. This is intense. I mean, who are you? I'm an educator, Model 101. I am from the future. 30 years from now, you sent me back in time to protect and inform you. Protect me? Protect me from what? A Model T-3009, which can take any form, has been sent by the cyborgs to stop you from ever listening to the Jodcast. Jodcast? What's a Jodcast? There you are. Listen to this. Who are you? John! John, get away from him! He's trying to kill you! John! The Jodcast, where every year is the year of astronomy. With Megan Argo, Stuart Lowe, Ian Morrison, and Nick Rattenbury. The Jodcast, January 2009 issue. Hello and Happy New Year! Happy New Year, everyone. Yes, this is now the January 1 episode of The Jodcast 2009. We're actually recording this on the last day of 2008. That's right. So it's uh, New Year's Eve, and uh, we've got Although the... Although in a few minutes, we we reckon that the first people in the world will be celebrating the New Year. That's right. On the other side of the world, in glorious New Zealand. So Happy New Year to everybody, whenever it occurs to you. And uh, just remember that uh, the New Year offers many opportunities to celebrate the International Year of Astronomy. And we'll be talking about those later. We'll also be finding out about our favourite images of 2008... We'll find out what you can see in the night sky during January. But first, before all of that, here's the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month. Studying the centre of the Milky Way. The latest results from Cassini. And water detected in the early universe. A 16-year study of the centre of the Milky Way has mapped the orbits of almost 30 stars around the supermassive black hole known as Sagittarius A-star. Led by Reinhard Genzel at the Max Planck Institute for Extraterrestrial Physics in Germany, the team have used state-of-the-art telescopes and instruments run by ESO in Chile to carefully observe more than 100 stars in the central few arcseconds of the galactic centre. Because of the large amount of dusty material between the Earth and the galactic centre, optical telescopes are not useful for accurately imaging the stars around Sagittarius A-star. However, Observations in the near-infrared part of the spectrum can penetrate through the dust and provide images of this tumultuous region. By using sensitive adaptive optic systems to remove the blurring effects caused by the Earth's atmosphere, the astronomers have been able to make highly accurate measurements of the positions of 28 of the closest stars to the black hole. Over the 16 years of the study, they have even seen one star, known as S2, complete a full orbit of the black hole. By precisely calculating the orbits of these stars, the astronomers have been able to refine the mass of the black hole and our distance from it, but the observations had to be incredibly accurate. The positions of the stars have been measured with the precision of 300 micro-arcseconds, equivalent to seeing a one-euro coin at a distance of roughly 10,000 kilometres. The results of the study, published in the Astrophysical Journal during December, show that the mass of the black hole is 4.31 million solar masses, and our distance from it is 8.33 kiloparsecs, or 27,000 light-years. Although there is very strong evidence that a supermassive black hole lies at the centre of the Milky Way, there are still many open questions about the nature of the surrounding region, which will require next-generation instrumentation to solve. One such question is how some of the young stars seen in the galactic centre came to be there, since they are too young to have moved far from their birthplace 
but the tidal forces due to the black hole are thought to inhibit star formation. Astronomers hope that new techniques with even greater accuracy will be able to test theoretical models of the region and hopefully provide some answers. Cassini's latest flyby of Saturn's moon Enceladus has showed evidence of ongoing changes over time in the surface near the South Pole. Previous observations showed jets of water vapour and icy particles apparently coming from long cracks in the moon's surface. The latest data on the plumes show that the vapour cloud varies over time, supplying the ring system with fresh material and pushing ionised gas into Saturn's magnetosphere. This new information comes from a flyby of the moon on the 9th of October, which took Cassini deep into the plume, passing just 25 kilometres above the icy surface. Two other flybys of the moon targeted the South Pole region on August 11th and October 31st, 2008, taking very high-resolution images of specific regions of the distinctive tiger-stripe fractures where the vents are located. The Cassini imaging team, led by Carolyn Porco of the Space Science Institute in Colorado, presented the results from the three latest flybys at a meeting of the American Geophysical Union in San Francisco during December. The images show that the surface of Enceladus displays an Earth-like spreading of the icy crust, creating rifts and mountains in a similar way to the plate tectonics observed here on Earth. One big difference, however, is that the drift is almost all in one direction, more like a conveyor belt than the bidirectional drift usually observed in places like the mid-Atlantic plate boundary on Earth, where asymmetric spreading is rare and not well understood, according to Cassini Imaging Associate Paul Helfenstein. The images have also added evidence to the theory that condensation from the vapour jets may create ice plugs which build up and eventually close off a vent, forcing a new vent to open at a different point on the fracture. At the same meeting, results from recent flybys of Titan were also presented. The latest data provide further evidence that Saturn's largest moon contains active cryovolcanoes, erupting volatile materials such as water, ammonia and methane, rather than molten rock. The evidence comes from changes in the appearance of the moon's surface in images taken on different flybys in regions where data from the craft's radar instruments suggests signs of volcanic activity. It is not yet certain that volcanism is the cause of the surface changes. Other theories have not been discounted completely, and the scientists are still analysing data from the most recent flybys during December. Observations made using the 100-metre diameter Effelsberg telescope in Germany have detected the presence of water vapour in a galaxy at a record distance from the Earth. The study used an effect known as gravitational lensing to search for radio emission in the quasar known as MGJ0414 plus 0534, located at a redshift of 2.64, a light travel time of 11.1 billion years. The previous distance record for the detection of water was at a redshift of 0.66, corresponding to a light travel time of just 6 billion years. The astronomers were looking for water mazes, radiation beamed and amplified in a similar way to light in a laser, but at microwave wavelengths instead. Mazes occur naturally in regions of dense gas, in areas of high star formation, or around supermassive black holes in active galaxies, as highly energetic megamazes. The water maser found in JO414 has a luminosity equivalent to 10,000 times the luminosity of the Sun, making it more powerful than most water mazes seen in nearby galaxies. But, without the effect of gravitational lensing, an observation of 580 days would have been required to detect it, rather than the 14 hours that were used. 
In looking for distant signs of water, the group selected a distant quasar, where a foreground galaxy was along the same line of sight, acting like a magnifying glass, allowing sensitive observations out to much greater distances than is normally possible. The presence of a water maser in the first gravitationally lensed object observed by the group implies that water may have been much more abundant in the early universe than was first thought, as pointed out by John McKean, a co-author of the Discovery paper, published in Nature during December. And finally, a team from the University of Queensland in Brisbane, Australia, have suggested a new theory to explain the loss of the ill-fated Mars probe Beagle 2. The probe was designed to search for signs of life on the Red Planet, but vanished on Christmas Day 2003. The researchers carried out a simulation which suggests that a misjudgment of the Martian atmosphere could have caused the probe to lose control as it descended towards its landing site. As it detached from the Mars Express orbiter, the craft on which Beagle 2 hitched a ride to Mars, it was made to spin in order to stabilise its descent towards the surface. However, because the properties of the atmosphere change with height, the ideal spin rate was difficult to calculate. Conditions in the thin upper atmosphere are different to the denser regions near the planet's surface, and the Beagle 2 team estimated the likely forces in the transitional zone between the two better understood regions. What the new simulations suggest is that the spin rate could have been set too high, causing the spacecraft to destabilise and burn up before reaching the ground. The debate is far from over, however, with several other theories still to be discounted, including parachute failure, loss of radio communications, or higher-than-expected levels of atmospheric dust. Thanks, Megan. And so as the sun rises, local dawn, wherever you are, 2009, we celebrate the International Year of Astronomy, 2009. And Stuart, tell us a bit more about it. Yes, now on the 1st of January, hopefully, there will have been a global solar observing event that was organised by the Centro de Astrofisica da Universidad do Porto in Portugal, and their aim was to get as many people around the world observing the sun safely with solar telescopes or with projection kits um, to look at the sun perhaps for the first time. So we hope that event went very well. Mm. Um, we're in the past for that event, so we don't know whether it did or didn't, um, but hopefully they did. Yes. It's quite fun, actually, the idea that um, even though we tell people, don't look at the sun, don't observe the sun, absolutely not, you can observe the sun safely, and it is an exciting thing to look at. So while we stress the importance of not observing the sun with telescopes unprotected observations of the sun, through telescopes, binoculars, or even just with the naked eye, it's still a fun thing to look at, so long as you've got the proper equipment. It is, and as we start going in towards solar maximum, then we'll start to see some sunspots on the sun, and it should be a lot more interesting than it has been in the last year. Mm. I mean, the sun, just without any sunspots, looks like a oh, flat like disc, a... really. Yep. And it's not that interesting to look at. However, you get prominences as yeah, well. Yeah, I mean, but when d- during solar maximum, when there's plenty of sun activity, then the flares, uh, solar prominence is wonderful to look at. So it's uh, exciting times coming up for those of you who are interested in looking at the sun. Now, that's just the first event in our International Year of Astronomy. The opening ceremony will be held in around the middle of January in Paris, but there are plenty of events going on all around the world. The best thing to do is to find your national node of the country near you and find their website, and they'll give lists of events where you live. So there could be things like solar observations, nighttime observations, star parties... There will be, there'll be some moon observing events and there will be a whole series of events around something called the 100 Hours of Astronomy, which is a plan to, to get people having star parties all around the world over a period of 100 hours, mm. which should be pretty exciting. And we suggest that people go and find out more about that on their website. We'll put links to that in the show notes. And there is, of course, 
365 Days of Astronomy. There is. It's a brand new podcast, and I talk to Dr. Pamela Gay to find out more. Okay, we're joined by Dr. Pamela Gay of the University of Southern Illinois, Edwardsville. Hi, Pamela. Welcome to the Jodcast. Hi, Stuart. How are you doing? I'm okay, thanks. Now, you create Astronomy Cast, along with Fraser Kane of Universe Today, but you're also involved with the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast. So just give us a background as to exactly what it is. It's at its core, it's just another podcast, but this one invites the entire community of astronomy to participate. We're planning to put out a new, basically six to 10 minute podcast every single day of 2009. That sounds like an awful lot of work. Yes. And this is why we're inviting the entire community to take part. Any one group of people could never pull this off, but by going to everyone, and that includes you, Stuart, um, <laughs> by, by going to everyone and saying, Hey, we see you blog, we see you podcast, we hear you have a good voice, we know you have a good story to tell, you're part of the astronomy community. Um, by inviting everyone to participate, we can pull off this larger scale of a project, and we can also introduce to our listeners topics as far-ranging as science fiction to science fact to the details of relativity to the details of why we have solar eclipses. Now, I know that over the last month or so, lots of people have been volunteering to, to produce episodes. I'm one of them. Has the entire year been filled now? I think right now we're looking at about 50% of the dates are accounted for. So that still gives over 100 days that are waiting for somebody's name to get attached to them. So if any of our listeners were starting to feel inspired to contribute... Um, what do they need to know and how do they go about getting involved? Well, the only real constraint we have is you have to do your podcast in English. But beyond that, go to the 365daysofastronomy.org website. That's just 365daysofastronomy.org. And there's a join in tab. Click on that and it'll give you information on what the technology required is, what file formats are required. And then it invites you to send an email after looking at the calendar and lay claim to a few different dates and tell us what different topics you're interested in talking on. And then someone from our team will get back to you and will work on confirming dates. And one month before your day is due, uh, we'll be sending you information on how to get us your audio files. Now, you said about the technology. Does that mean that people need some kind of special equipment to record an episode? No. It, you do need to have some means of being able to record your audio. Uh, there's lots of different things out on the market that work. Just getting a Logitech mic and attaching it to a computer and using the free Audacity software that's available works. If you have a good microphone that you use for communicating with Skype or anything else, that should be sufficient. Um Audacity is free, it's easy to use, and we'll provide a web space that you can upload your audio files to. Now, some of our listeners probably have great ideas, but they might be a bit shy about recording their voices. Can they still contribute? Yes. In fact, it, anyone who wants to just write a script, there are several of us who are more than willing to read scripts for you. So if, if you're a writer and you don't like to have your voice heard by other people... Uh, get in contact with us about that, and we'll work on partnering you up with voice talent. So it seems that there are plenty of ways for people to get involved. Are there any particular topics that you'd like to hear people talk about? I I think just this is something that 
we want to hear about science at all different levels. We want to hear about how astronomy has affected culture. We want to hear about all different aspects. So find something that you're passionate about or find someone who does astronomy that you really want the world to hear what they have to say and interview them. It doesn't have to be just one voice. You can do this as a team. You can do this as an interview. Find something that you're passionate about and share it with the world. I think that's probably very good advice. So this is a, a podcast that everyone can listen to and everyone can contribute to, which is great. And it looks set to make it very interesting indeed. So perhaps some of our listeners will contribute and add a topic that they're passionate about into the mix. So if they want to do that, can you just remind us what the website address was? 365daysofastronomy.org. Well, we'll make sure we put that in the show notes as well. So Pamela, thank you for taking the time to talk to us. It's been my pleasure, Stuart. So for those of you who have suggested to us at the Jodcast that we should produce the Jodcast daily, and we have said no, too much hard work, <laughs> you can get your daily astronomy podcast fixed every day this year by making sure you download the 365 Days of Astronomy, that special project of the International Year of Astronomy 2009. And if you listen out on the 8th of January, you may recognize some voices as well. Hmm. So go and subscribe to the RSS feed for 365 Days of Astronomy. So now from looking ahead to what's coming up next year, Stuart and I decided to take a look back over 2008 and choose our favourite astronomy images. Stuart, what did you come up with? Well, we've been pretty spoiled by missions taking images this year. We have the Messenger spacecraft at Mercury, which we've been taking great pictures of craters and volcanoes and the full disk of, of Mercury. That's been quite exciting. There's Venus Express at Venus. We've got things actually looking at the Earth. Um, there was a great transit movie showing the moon, our moon, transiting the Earth, taken by the Epoxy spacecraft, which launched the Deep Impact probe mm. in 2005. That took a, a great transit movie of the Earth this year. We have plenty of missions at Mars. The Probably what I would say was the best mission of the year, which was the Phoenix lander. It certainly caused the most excitement and, and press coverage when it landed on Mars and then has been uncovering frost and frozen water underneath the surface, which has sublimated as it, as it dug it up. And that, in fact, the frost on Mars from Phoenix was suggested by one of our Twitter followers, Sherik Kamur. Now, another great picture by Phoenix was a picture of the midnight sun, which was a series of stills that were put together as a composite image, showing the sun over the course of about 11 days. And that's pretty nice. You've got the sun skirting around the horizon right. at midnight. And that's that's quite a nice picture. Also on Mars, we've got Spirit and Opportunity, which are still going strong. We also have the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, which took a brilliant image of the Phoenix lander as it was parachuting through the atmosphere. I don't know if you remember yes, that one. Yes, I remember that one. That was actually spectacular. Yeah. It was, it was hard to decipher it if you, if you didn't have a big circle indicating the, <laughs> you know, the, the little smudge which was the probe parachuting down. But once, once you did see, once you were shown. You could, you could see the difference between the, the, there was a parachute and there was the probe. Yeah. You could see there were two distinct objects. And so that was pretty impressive just yes. on the, they're being able to take that picture at the right time. Normally, uh, um, space agencies produce a, uh, an artist's impression of these probes landing on the uh, alien world surface. Now we've actually got a photograph of it, which I think is in, in many ways far more spectacular than any imaginative uh, conception. Another caught-in-the-act moment by the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter was an avalanche on Mars. It actually caught some material falling down a hill. That's right. We shouldn't forget Mars Express, the European Space Agency's Mars Orbiter, 
which is still there taking amazing 3D images of the surface of Mars. Mm. And moving out through the solar system, we've got Cassini at Saturn, which is just returning thousands of amazing images of the moons of Saturn and Saturn itself, mm. uh, with the rings and various combinations of rings, moons, and Saturn, and the atmosphere of Saturn. There's a great image of the polar hexagon that was discovered. One of our other Twitter followers, McTavish, suggests the ice geysers of Enceladus, which are amazing things that were discovered by the Cassini probe in its many orbits around Saturn. And it keeps returning brilliant pictures of those those geysers throwing ice out into space. Hmm. And then we shouldn't forget a couple of missions a bit closer to home going around the moon. So there was India's Chandrayaan-1, which has been taking some images of the mineralogy of the moon by looking at different colours. There's also the Japanese space agency's Kaguya, which has been taking HD movies of the moon. It's the first HD camera to go to the moon, and it's been taking amazing movies of Earthrise, recreating some of those amazing Apollo images that were taken. Anyway, so outside the solar system, I think my favourite image of the year, just for its its wow factor, is an image by Chandra and the Hubble Space Telescope of the NGC 6543, which is the Cat's Eye Nebula. Yes, the detail on the image is yeah. phenomenal. It really is. So, well, to me, it gave me a completely new view of the Cat's Eye Nebula mm. that I hadn't seen before. So I really like that one. It was a multi-wavelength one, wasn't it? It was, yeah, combining X-ray and optical light together. It must be amazing to think what it would be like if you could see the universe in not just the optical, but in the infrared, the X-ray, the gamma ray, the radio... I imagine you'd be blinded, wouldn't you? That's pretty much it. Yeah, you would. You'd need pretty big eyes to be able to see in the radio, though, ah, yeah. um, to get any kind of resolution. But apart from that, I mean, we're starting to get there with software that's out nowadays. I mean, Google Sky's not quite doing multi-wavelength at the moment, but the Microsoft Worldwide Telescope, it certainly allows you to change wavelength on mm. the sky. Yeah. yeah. That's exactly what I would like, a complete multi-wavelength view of the universe and whatever wavelengths you want. Yes. And we're starting to get there. Wonderful. What were your favourite images? Well, my choice was actually covered in the news for this episode. It was the uh, images taken of the centre of the Milky Way showing the orbital path of a number of stars going around the central supermassive black hole of the Milky Way. So it's a picture of something which you can't see. So (laughs) uh, we know that black holes exist, and for many, many years, our understanding of how our own Milky Way galaxy's structure, composition, how it's made up, and of what it's made has led us to the conclusion that there must be a supermassive black hole at the centre. However, then people would say, well, how do you know? How do you know? Show us a picture of it. Of course we can't, because a black hole is, by definition, black. And although you could infer the presence of a black hole through uh, an accretion disk, let's say, mm-hmm. producing um, what we call uh, an active galactic nucleus, we're pretty lucky that we don't live in an active galactic nucleus galaxy because we probably wouldn't be here to talk about it because they tend to be quite energetically exciting places to live so we don't have one of those don't have an accretion disk showing the existence of the black hole before anybody out there who has read stephen hawking's a brief history of time starts talking about hawking radiation let's just accept the fact that a black hole a quiescent black hole is difficult to see directly However, the group who is led by a researcher at the Max Planck Institute for Astronomy have taken many images over 16 years of the central stars of the galaxy and watched them orbit something which we cannot see in a manner very similar to a whole bunch of stars orbiting a supermassive black hole. So to me, to my mind, even though you can't actually see what the most exciting thing is in the image, namely the black hole, the fact that they've taken these images over 16 years 
showing. That's an impressive technical accomplishment. It anyway, is. in itself. Yeah, it is. As I Megan, mean, presumably Megan. they've had to use different telescopes to take the images. No, that's right. I mean, they started using uh, one particular camera on the 3.5 meter NTT, the new technology telescope in La Silla. And of course, as times, time has moved on. 16 years is a long time in astronomy, so the instrumentation will have changed. And then the VLT became available, so they started taking observations with that. So over 16 years, it's nice to be able to see uh, a spectacular result over um, such a short period of time. Certainly astronomically speaking, that's uh, a fraction of a, of a of unit of, of galactic time, let's say. So, of course, I've cheated a little bit because the best way to see these results is to not just look at one image, but to look at all of the images put together as a movie and you see the stars orbiting the unseen black hole. So do take a look at the ESO webpage. They've got quite a few movies. They've got quite a few interviews with ESO experts. So it's that's my choice. That's my choice. We've got a bit of a theme here, because last year, amongst our favourite images were other things you couldn't see, which was dark matter. Oh, yeah. It's a three-dimensional map of dark matter in the universe. So it's good to know that even though we have all these spectacular images of things which we can see, which are very pretty, sometimes you take pictures of things which you can't see, which are interesting. So from things that we can't see to things that we can see in the night sky during January, here's Ian Morrison. Well, the night sky, January 2009. Soon comes round again, doesn't it? Well, in the mid to late evening sky in the south, we have one of the most beautiful skyscapes that we can ever see in the northern hemisphere. High in the south is the constellation of Orion the Hunter, with his three stars, below the central one of which is the sword of Orion. If you look at it even with your eye, you might see a little hazy glow there, and with binoculars, certainly you'll see a smudge. A small telescope shows a lovely region of dust and gas, illuminated by four very bright stars called the trapezium, which lie at its heart. The ultraviolet light from those stars is exciting the hydrogen gas, and it gives out a lovely pinky-red colour. You'll find lots and lots of beautiful images of the Orion Nebula if you look on the web. Those three stars make a superb pointer to the rest of the sky. Down to the lower left is the brightest star in our northern hemisphere, Sirius, about magnitude minus 1.5. Just below Sirius, if you, if you put some binoculars on Sirius and just track downwards a bit, I hope you might pick up a little cluster called M41. It has got some blue stars, but also a nice bright red giant star at its heart. Very pretty little cluster, often overlooked in the Northern Hemisphere because it's not very high above the horizon. But on a clear, transparent night, start at Sirius and just drop down a little bit. You'll certainly find it. If you take those three stars up to the right, you'll find you come to the constellation of Taurus the Bull. There are two wonderful clusters there, of course. The Hyades cluster forms the head of the bull. There's a bright star, Aldebaran, that forms its eye. It's an, actually an orange supergiant. But in fact, that's not part of the cluster. It's only about halfway between us and the Hyades cluster. If you carry on in that same direction, you come to the Pleiades cluster. We see perhaps five stars, maybe nine if it's a very transparent night and you're young and have got good eyesight. Under very dark skies, with binoculars or a small telescope, you may actually see some nebulosity 
some bright regions surrounding the brighter stars of the Pleiades. It appears to be moving through a dust cloud, and the dust grains are reflecting and scattering the light. It's a very pretty object. Again, wonderful pictures can be found on the web. Above Orion is the constellation Auriga, with the bright star Capella at its head. The Milky Way runs through Auriga, and there are quite a number of open clusters. So searching through it with binoculars is quite a rewarding business. And then up to the left of Orion, we have Gemini, the heavenly twins, with the bright stars Castor and Pollux. Again, there's a rather nice cluster down at the foot of the uppermost of the twins, M35. Again, on a dark night, binoculars or a small telescope will pick it up. So I do hope you get out on these perhaps rather cold nights and have a look at the night sky. Well, what about the planets this month? Well, it's not perhaps the best month for planets, but it could be worse. Let's start with Jupiter. Now, it's been in our evening sky relatively low for some months now. It's getting very close to the sun, but you might just find it at the very beginning of the month, and I'll come back to that in one of the highlights of the month. Saturn, on the other hand, is now the best-placed planet in the sky, and you don't have to wait too long at night to observe it. In fact, it rises at about 10.30pm at the beginning of January, and by 9pm at, at the end of the month. It can be seen high in the southern sky in the hours before dawn. It actually lies below the outline of Leo. The constellation Leo has a little bit of a sort of a bit that dips down between the two neighbouring constellations. Quite why, I don't know, but that's in fact exactly where Saturn is at the moment. It's about magnitude plus 0.8. That's quite bright, but not as bright as we normally see it. The rings are almost edge on. There's in fact less than a degree that we can see. Now, over the next year, it actually stays very, very low indeed, changing a little bit. And in September 2009, they'll actually be edge on to us, and they'll completely disappear. Mercury. Well, we'll come back to Mercury in a highlight too. But it rose out of the sunset glare at the end of December and reaches what is called eastern elongation on January the 4th. And I've made that day one of the highlights of the month, so we'll come back to it. Mars, sadly, is so close to the Sun, we really can't observe it. We'll have to wait a few more months before it is seen again in the pre-dawn sky. Now, you can hardly fail to spot Venus. It's low in the west after sunset. It's gradually moving further in angle from the Sun, and so will remain in the evening sky for longer after the Sun has set. In fact, it sets about 8pm at the beginning of January, and by about 915 at the end of the month. Its brightness stays very stable, at about minus 4.5. Its angular size is about 19.2 arc seconds, but as it nears us, the angular size increases. Again, I'll come back to Venus in our highlights. So, what about a few highlights for January? Well, there are one or two, in fact. Let's start on the 4th of January, at the very beginning of the month. That's the night, as I mentioned, when Mercury is at what is called eastern elongation, its furthest angle from the sun, about 19 degrees away. So it sets the longest time after sunset and would be easiest to see. However, I think binoculars would in fact be useful. If you can pick it out, then four degrees to its lower right 
you'll see Jupiter, magnitude minus 1.9, and that may be the last chance we'll have of seeing it until it appears in the morning sky. Way up to the left at magnitude minus 4.4 is Venus, and about the same distance again is in fact the first quarter moon shining brightly in the sky. That should be a very nice skyscape. Let's just hope it's clear. So many nights it isn't. So that's one. So that's the 4th of January. Now, if you stay up, or go to bed preferably, and wake up in the early hours of the morning, you've got a chance to see one of the annual meteor showers. It's called the Quantrids, because in fact it comes, it's radiant, from where the meteors are seen to come from, is in what used to be called a very small constellation called the Quadrant which was a device used by early astronomers, most notably Tycho Brahe, to measure the elevations of stars. And it's actually now in the constellation of Bootes. So looking to the northeast, at about five in the morning, that's when the shower is meant to peak. The moon, which, remember, was at first quarter, will have set long ago, so it should be a dark sky, and you should have a reasonable chance of seeing them. So that's two of them. On January the 7th, the moon, which is getting towards full, in fact, occults the Pleiades just after sunset. So you'll see the moon over in the east where the Pleiades cluster is, fairly high up. And as the sun has set and it gets dark, you'll actually see the moon covering up some of the stars of the Pleiades cluster. Binoculars will be a great aid for this. But as the night goes on, by about 1837 in the evening, then it will have cleared the last of the stars. So it might be just nice to have a look at that. Now, finally, I do sometimes try and get you to have a look at some of the fainter planets. I've talked about Neptune in the past. But in fact, between January the 21st and the 23rd, Uranus is just over a degree away from Venus. So that's a wonderful pointer to find it. If you look on the night sky page of the Jodrell Bank website, or just put night sky into Google, you'll actually find that in the highlights I've got a chart that actually shows you how to find Uranus. In fact, Venus just passes below it, just about one and a quarter degrees below. So it's a very easy little planet to spot. It's got a magnitude of 5.9, so binoculars will pick it out easily. And in fact, if it really was dark and clear, you could see it with your unaided eye. Well, now for something for observers in the Southern Hemisphere, although I hope that those in the Northern Hemisphere might find it interesting too, and you never know, you might be visiting there someday in the future. If you look due south, somewhere about 10 o'clock in January, perhaps coming towards 9 o'clock as you go towards February, just to the east of south, you'll see one of the brightest stars in the sky called Alpha Centauri. It's actually, a, I think, part of a triple system, one of which stars is called Proxima Centauri, which is, in fact, the nearest star to our own sun, hence its name, 4.2 light-years away. I think Alpha Centauri is about 4.3-something light-years away. It looks pretty bright, partly because it's obviously very close. Up to the left of Alpha Centauri, you'll see the star Beta Centauri. It's not quite as bright, but whereas Alpha Centauri is just over four light-years away from us, Beta Centauri is over 500 light-years away from us. 
vastly further away, which means that Beta Centauri must inherently be a very, very bright star. Now, these two stars can be used as pointers towards perhaps the best-known constellation in the southern sky, although not the brightest, is called Crooks, the Southern Crocs. And it's an interesting region in its own right. It lies in the band of the Milky Way, and just to its lower left, it has perhaps one of those prominent dark regions. It's called the Coal Sack. It's called a dark nebula. Uh, it's about 7 degrees long by 5 degrees wide. It's a dense region of dust and gas about 2,000 light-years from us that's hiding the light from more distant stars. In fact, it's the most prominent dark nebula in the whole of the Milky Way. So that's a very nice thing to see. In fact, you'll see it just below Alpha Crucis, or A. Crux is its name, uh, as you look up towards the Southern Cross. To the left of Alpha Crucis, you can find Beta Crucis, and very close to that is a rather lovely little open cluster. It's called the Jewel Box. It has another name called Kappa Crucis. It contains about 100 visible stars and is about 10 million years old. It's about 7,500 light years away. So it's a very nice object to look at with binoculars or a telescope at low power. It's got lots of highly luminous blue-white stars and a central red supergiant that makes a beautiful color contrast. In fact, it was named the jewel box by Sir John Herschel, who called it a gorgeous piece of fancy jewelry. So there are a few things to have a look through in January. I do hope we get some good, clear, dark skies so you can enjoy them to the full. Thanks, Ian. And yes, best of luck to everybody out there who are observing the night sky in January for 2009. Now, feedback. We've had some feedback from folk. I guess um, everybody's busy doing the Christmas holiday thing, so we haven't had too much feedback. So thanks to David Entwistle for your feedback, and thanks to Terry Goodfellow, who thanks us for our December 08 edition, and mentions that whilst he was in New Zealand recently, on holiday, he went to uh, the observatory on top of Mount John. Oh, I know it well. You and know so well. do you. And so do I. Yes, I've spent quite a bit of time up there. So yes, the University of Canterbury's Mount John University Observatory, where most of the uh, astronomy is done in New Zealand. Uh, Terry went up there on a tour, and if he hadn't been listening to the Jodcast, he wouldn't have known about it. So very thanks, Terry, for your comments, and uh, we're pleased that uh, here at the Jodcast we can mention places to go for you on your holidays. Well, it was a it was a brilliant place, and you get to see the southern sky, which is the best half of the sky. Indeed. Well, I think so. So, moving on to Twitter, we've had quite a lot of helpful comments um, during the last few weeks on Twitter. As people may have noticed, our web server has been struggling recently over the Christmas holidays. Um, it's sort of it's been dying every day, pretty much. Yes, and I think that we, we were probably um, responsible for that. By releasing an audio podcast just before Christmas, along with a video, we possibly have killed the server as a result. Um, we had quite a lot of bandwidth transfer. In fact, I think we had about a terabyte um, pretty quickly in the few days following that. People using the Miro desktop video client um, have been causing most of it. They've been downloading the HD videos like crazy over the holidays. 
So we've been trying to come up with ways to reduce the load on our server and reduce our bandwidth requirements. And a few people suggested BitTorrent and using archive.org. And one thing that, that we're trying at the moment is using a service called Coral, which is a service which basically acts as a, a proxy and keeps local copies nearer to people mm-hmm. so that it doesn't all have to come from our server. So we're trying that out and seeing whether that has an, Im- an improvement on our web server. In the last show, we mentioned that we would have two of the next Jodcast videos available for you to watch over the Christmas break. Due to the trouble we're having with our server, we thought we might postpone the release of the second video until we've sorted out the issues with bandwidth. So apologies for that if you've been hanging out for the second of the two we promised you before the end of this year. It will be on its way. We just want to make sure that we don't melt our computers in doing it. So do stay tuned and we'll get it out as soon as we're sure that we won't cause any more trouble. So thank you to Sharika Moore, to Jamex UK, to Nishen, to Stephen Witty, to DJ Quay, to Afonso, to Chris1051, and to Nick EO70812 for all your comments over the Christmas and New Year holidays. And if you want to leave us feedback, you can always do this at www.jodcast.net. You can Twitter away at twitter.com slash jodcast. You can join the Jodcast Facebook page at jodcast.net slash Facebook. And you can also leave your comments at youtube.com slash jodcast. Or you can send us a postcard, you can send us a letter, you can call us up, you can talk to us anytime you like, any way you like. Please leave us the feedback and let us know how we're doing. So that brings us to the end of this January edition of the Jodcast. We'll be back with the January Extra in the middle of the month. And until then, it just leaves us say a happy International Year of Astronomy and Jod on. Jod on, everybody. What have you done to him? What have you done to him? Chill, Mom. I've only been listening to a podcast. Now that you have heard it, you will go on to be the greatest astronomer the world has ever known. That's what's in my future? That is the future the T-3009 has been sent to avert. Yes. And I will now succeed in my mission. This is not happening. And it never will. Die, John Connor. You will not harm him. I will take you far from him. Let me go! John Connor, tell the world of the Jodcast. Use the International Year of Astronomy and realize your future. You haven't heard the last of me. We'll be back. Heavy.